not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness head on. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety over nine years ago in my blog, Unpickled, and in books like the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide and my poetry collection, The Ember Ever There. So I tell my stories there, and I hold space for your stories here. And today I'm holding space for a listener of this show who responded when I mentioned in a previous episode that I wondered what it was like for doctors when they are dealing with somebody who has questions about recovery or who comes to them with symptoms of recovery, what they're taught in med school, and what it's like to be on the other side of the clipboard. (laughs) And uh, this lovely listener has responded and offered to share her insight and expertise with us today. So I welcome Dr. Maureen to the Bubble Hour. Hi, Dr. Maureen. Thanks for being here. Hi, Jean. And you can certainly just call me Maureen. Um, My name's Maureen Filipek. And um, as Jean said, we connected over her query for input from healthcare providers. In the past, I had heard some kind of cringeworthy tales of how this went for some of the listeners and guests when they tried to ask their doctor for help or how that went. So I'm hoping today's discussion will help improve that for me and for all listeners. A little bit about myself. I'm a 56-year-old lady, and I'm a wife of 35 years to the same lovely and patient man. We have two grown daughters in their 30s, and we have one little granddaughter and a second little grandson on the way. As far as profession, I'm a diagnostic radiologist, primarily a women's imager, but I do a fair amount of interventional radiology as well, which means I actually have a patient face-to-face contact daily. I'm not a family doc or a generalist and don't mean to speak for them, but bring my experience and how this comes up in my profession what my training did to help me hopefully serve people with addiction issues and mental health issues, at least in a cursory and introductory fashion and help them feel safe. So I've been a women's imager for around 20 years. I split my time between Central Oregon and Homer, Alaska, which gives me a large breadth of experience and uh, adventure. And why I listen to the bubble hour is I actually had Uh, eating disorders from when I was 15 to early 20s that actually almost killed me and uh, had to do a lot of very hard work in that time. Started with anorexia and moved to bulimia. And with a lot of help and support and therapy, I developed a lot of tools to overcome that gratefully. There were also a couple times in my life where alcohol, I think, played a little role. And I also feel like other process addictions like overworking and overexercising, kind of anything has applied at times in my life. But the times that were particularly vulnerable for me with alcohol were in my early 20s when I was overcoming my eating disorder and really working on that. 
and had small children. And I think I whack a mold a little bit and occasionally overdrank. Um, luckily, it wasn't a very good drug for me. I have uh, migraine headaches and it really triggered them and just had a very toxic effect. So it didn't take root. Um, certainly could have, but didn't. And then I got busy with parenting and then went back to college and then medical school and then residency and didn't have any issues for several decades. But um, in my mid-40s, I had a falling out with a sibling that just caused me a tremendous amount of grief. And my kids were kind of leaving home after college about the same time. And again, I kind of found myself using alcohol, as Jean puts it, to put a brick on my head and uh, to try to sleep and just quiet my nerves. But thanks to everything I learned from overcoming my eating disorder and just the tools and life skills that I've learned over time, I was able to kind of see that that was of no benefit really quickly. I've been living alcohol-free by and large for the last six years. So that's why I listened to the Bubble Hour, and I just have great gratitude for Jean's work and all the ladies, all the way from Lisa and Ellie, Catherine, Amanda, the last 10 years, it's been my buddy. So thanks, Jean, for that work. Ah, that's so sweet. <laughs> it's so neat to know uh, that I'm keeping people company and don't even know it. And uh, I know that the other women who uh, have been in the show on the, on the past as well, have, who have been part of the show in the past uh, feel the same way that it's just it's just so heartwarming to get to connect with people who have been listening for a long time so that's really cool yeah. so I'm going to use the time that we have today to just ask you about some of these things that that are on my mind and have you jump in as well if there's other things you know, if this leads to places that you think there's things that we should know. But let's just start with a really basic question of what are some of the health benefits of going alcohol-free? And then the flip side of that, what are the risks associated with high-risk drinking, like daily drinking or binge drinking? Jean, it's a little bit easier for me to first start with how it affects our body and then understanding conversely not doing it has the benefit. And then kind of going through the more salient, beautiful benefits. But if it's okay, we'll start with kind of more like why it's so dangerous. For sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, I mean, just I want to also say that these are not comprehensive points. Uh, there's a lot more to this, and this doesn't account for people's background health issues or underlying issues. You know, there are exclusions, of course. So it's just general for background information. And I find it kind of easiest to kind of work from head to toe. And I'll try not to get too um, nebulous in my terms. I think we also need to recognize that I believe 80, 86% of people, adults in America, drink alcohol. So this applies to a lot of people. And there's really not another drug I can think of that has the potential to damage as many organ systems and as much as our body as alcohol over time. So just want to start with that main point. It's dangerous and it has a really deleterious effect on multiple systems. I also don't want to scare people or lecture people. We all know when we've had a hangover that alcohol is toxic. Um, it's really just it can help motivate us to make a better, healthier life choice for ourselves. And that's really why it's important to realize how harmful it can be. 
So starting on the brain, as, a, as an imager, when you look at the brain on a CT or an MRI and you think of a walnut, uh, the, the flesh of a healthy walnut fills all the way out to the shell. And that's kind of what a brain looks like when it's healthy and normal. And over time, alcohol can poison the brain and it can cause atrophy. And that atrophy causes a shrinking of the brain parenchyma. And that beautiful walnut can end up looking kind of like a little raisin. It, it's just profound. And that comes from direct toxicity and nutrition, nutritional deficits over time from alcohol misuse. So we can get atrophy, we can get dementia and memory loss, you know, um, in acute and long-term alcohol, you can also have hallucinations and psychosis and other things related to how it affects the brain. If we include mental health in there, which we should because, you know, of all suicide attempts and successful suicides, almost all of those have alcohol on board, which is just devastating. You know, it's a depressant. It increases anxiety over time. It decreases our sleep. It decreases our REM. Uh, it's, you know, addictive because I won't get into the neurotransmitters. You'll need an addiction specialist to do that. But we know that there's a dopamine hit and a slowing of GABA. And that can create an addictive nature. And no one is without risk of becoming addicted over time. So when we move down, it's also hard on the muscle. And the heart can get really softened. And we can get cardiomyopathy. Sometimes people can think back to episodes of drinking around the holidays where they drank a lot over multiple days. And we can get something called holiday heart, which is arrhythmias. And maybe people can even recall palpitations in bed. And that can be very dangerous. We also can get hypertension or high blood pressure. And it doesn't take a lot of alcohol to cause that. And it, that can actually be, when we get to the benefits, that can actually be reversible in part. It affects our nervous system. And that's Primarily through malnutrition, we can get peripheral neuropathy. And then, of course, we already talked about the brain. We have uh, decreased absorbed nutrients, and we just aren't having quality food if we're drinking most of our calories. If people think back to cheesy episodes of ER or Grey's Anatomy, they might remember these bright yellow bags that hang when someone's coming in on detox or with a hangover. And that's called a banana bag. And that's what we use to treat people in those situations. And it's just full of magnesium and electrolytes and B vitamins and thiamine to instantly replenish the very harmful things that alcohol has depleted over time. So moving down into the gut, you know, it changes our microbiome. It can make our gut leaky, and that also affects absorption. It can allow toxins and pathogens to move from our vascular system into our vascular space and spread disease. We can get ulcers and gastritis. A lot of people are familiar with diarrheal illness after drinking. It just really messes up the gut. Kidneys can get diseased, but primarily, you know, our kidneys diurese because alcohol is a diuretic. So we can get electrolyte imbalances and dehydration from drinking. The main organ a lot of us think of when we think about alcohol misuse or abuse is the liver. Because the liver clears 90% of alcohol, and it clears it in a healthy liver at about a drink an hour. That depends on other things like your tolerance and how much you've ate, but in general. And so alcohol hits the liver, alcohol dehydrogenase changes it into acetaldehyde. 
And acetylaldehyde, if you think of aldehyde like formaldehyde, it's toxic and carcinogenic. And that causes inflammation to the liver. A chronically inflamed liver can become cirrhotic and diseased and inflamed from overdrinking and having those inflammatory and toxic chemicals build up. And then over time, a stiff liver you know, becomes cirrhotic and we can get portal hypertension. And that's really where a portion of the vascular system kind of backs up. And you can get um, a big spleen, you can get varices, and those are expanded vessels from that back pressure. And those lead in very classic regions like our esophagus and our abdomen. If the liver gets sick enough, it stops synthesizing necessary molecules for our health. It makes albumin, which is a large protein, and that protein helps keep fluid in the correct space in our our body. So when our liver stops that synthetic function because it's so diseased, that fluid can transudate from the vascular system into the interstitial space. And when we think about end-stage liver disease from alcohol abuse long-term, some of us have seen patients with those great big protuberant abdomens full of ascites. They can look pregnant. Their belly button or umbilicus can stick out the wrong way. And I get to know a lot of those patients really well because we drain that fluid off usually on a weekly basis. And that's anywhere from, gosh, 20 or 30 liters. It can take hours. So that's, you know, when the liver is really end stage. The other thing that can happen is when our liver's not working, we build up ammonia in our blood and that ammonia can cause something called hepatic encephalopathy, which is just a big word for a near comatose state. So that's what we're kind of clinically used to when we talk about end stage liver disease and dying from chronic alcohol abuse is that kind of picture, encephalopathy, ascites, liver not working, obtunded comatose. Moving down, the pancreas can get inflamed. Pancreatitis is probably one of the most painful medical conditions to have. And also the pancreas is really key in synthesizing hormones and enzymes, and it's responsible for insulin. So a lot of people have hypoglycemia and issues with their blood sugar control when they chronically abuse alcohol. It's an inflammatory agent, as I mentioned. As far as sexual health is concerned, it can actually contribute to early menopause. It can decrease fertility, and in men, it can contribute to erectile dysfunction. If you're pregnant, it can cause fetal anomalies and increase pregnancy loss. And then our bones and muscles can be affected because we don't absorb calcium as well when we're drinking. Our sleep, I already mentioned, but that decreased REM can increase our cortisol. And a cortisol is, you know, cortisol is a stress hormone, and that can increase our uh, blood pressure and it can alter our blood sugar as well. Alcohol is also estrogenemic, or it creates higher systemic estrogen. And we think that's related to some of its carcinogenic effect, particularly in the breast. But it's, it's carcinogenic to other organs as well. And according to the American Cancer Society, there's no safe amount of alcohol. We should not drink at all when it comes to cancer. It increases, if you think about it, so it increases mouth, throat, larynx, or voice box, esophagus, colon, and rectum. So kind of everything that alcohol touches from your mouth to your bottom can have a higher risk of cancer. With respect to breast cancer, which comes close to 
what I do every day, three drinks a week, three per week, increases our lifetime risk for developing breast cancer to 15 to 20%. So the breast parenchyma just really, really, really does not like alcohol. And um, in a little bit, when we talk about some other stuff, I'll tell you why that comes up in my job on a daily basis. So those are kind of, you know, a generalized picture of how deleterious drinking over time can be. Um, when we talk about binge drinking, binge drinking is essentially drinking a large amount of alcohol in a short amount of time. And for women, it's like four drinks in less than two hours and men five drinks in less than two hours. And again, that depends on your tolerance. That depends on what you've ate that day, your weight, your size, but you get the picture. It's a large amount in a short amount of time. So what happens is that liver cannot synthesize alcohol quickly. So our blood alcohol concentration gets higher and higher and higher. And our impairment gets higher and higher and higher. So from mild to increase to severe to life-threatening as that blood alcohol increases. It also affects specific parts of our brain a little more, like the cerebellum and the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is what we think of when we think of blackout drinking, because that's responsible for memory. And so we have a lot more blackouts. And then the cerebellum is responsible for coordination and gait. And that's why we get ataxic and clumsy and can't walk. So this is a more dangerous type of drinking. About half of our alcohol-related deaths are from binge drinking. This is when people, you know, freeze up to death or drown. You know, this is when domestic abuse gets higher. People go to cook themselves a pizza and their house starts on fire. It's just when some really crazily bad things can happen. Also, what can happen is our brainstem can shut down at high enough concentrations. And so the food in our stomach can reflux up the esophagus. And without a gag reflux, it can go straight down our airway into our lungs. And that's called an aspiration event. And sometimes if it's a small amount, that can lead to pneumonia that can make you very ill. But a lot of times it suffocates you and you die from that aspiration. And then at really, really high levels, there's alcohol poisoning. When you've shut your CNS down, your respiratory centers can stop and you can just die. And that, of course, needs immediate medical intervention. So I guess I would just consider, you know, binge drinking a type of high volume super dangerous drinking. I think that's when those poor judgment things really come into play. And that's when you can end up with an STI that lasts, you know, lasts you the whole rest of your life because you're not really gauging your behavior. So that was a whole bunch of bad news. Should we switch gears to the benefits? <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering why the heck any of us ever drink. <laughs> so right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, um, we live and we learn. So um, I think, you know, so the benefits are, first of all, realize that all of those processes that we just went through, all those dangers, all the many systems that are affected, aren't using alcohol, at, you know, a spot at the table for chronic illness, because it affects so many of our body parts, right? And um, so we'll talk more about that later with where we want to go with this. But I think the first benefit to me is the mental health benefit, the increased self esteem, the increased personal growth. And I mean, this is not instant, but over time, when we honor ourselves, and we're smart, and we're personally responsible, 
and we stop dimming our own lights because we're not putting alcohol in our bodies, we, you know, just like ourselves better. We love that mental clarity. Um, we're smarter. We're making smarter decisions. We get an increase in our life skills. I mean, that can be from personal hygiene, like going to get your teeth clean for the first time in two years, um, you know, or your hair done, or balancing your books, or putting off hard decisions that you really need to address. So I think, you know, then there's, you know, the whole brain and memory and the actual system. But I think mental health is my number one for the benefit. And again, that takes time and hard work, but the clarity is a beautiful thing. We sleep better. I want to say that that's not universal. A lot of menopausal women would argue <laughs> that giving up alcohol hasn't helped them with that. But in general, we sleep better and get increased REM. We get, tend to get out and move more and take better care of ourselves. And then all of those systems we went through, our, our skin gets better. I didn't mention earlier, but with the estrogenemic effect, that's kind of where we get those facial capillaries and spider angiomas, those little red things on our face and nose that people talk about. And often that can go down when we quit that. So our skin tends to improve, people's eyes get brighter. They just look like they're getting that clear signal. Our digestion improves, our immune status improves, and that's really important right now in our world. We have decreased inflammation. So some people's joints feel better, their aches and pains feel better, they're able to get out and move more. And then you know, a lot of people, it doesn't take a large amount of alcohol to have a bump in your blood pressure. So a lot of people will get kind of a natural remedy in correction of that hypertension when they put down alcohol. And so, you know, it's not always, there are other reasons that can cause that, but most will get some reduction in their blood pressure when they stop. So, I mean, the, the main point I want today is that even if you're not able to completely give up alcohol, any reduction will have a health benefit. And, you know, it's just, you, there's no criteria needed to gift yourself with better health um, by doing that. I, I love that approach. My attitude when I quit drinking a decade ago was that, you know, I, I had crossed into addiction, therefore I could no longer drink. But it never really occurred to me to stop preemptively for health benefits the same way that, you know, we, you know, we might stop having caffeine. I still have right. caffeine, but, you know, <laughs> I have friends who gave up caffeine or sugar or um, things knowing that it's bad for them. I mean, I just the way that you talk about alcohol as a, a carcinogen, um, you know, we know don't smoke because mm -hmm that is so bad for you. Wear your sunscreen. I mean, we're all really good these days about wearing our sunscreen. I feel like alcohol needs to fall into that same mindset of, you know, you wear sunscreen, you don't want to get skin cancer. Putting alcohol into your digestive tract just is, you're right, it's, it moves through you, the contact uh, with all of your digestive tract, then those things can be so affected. Um, for cancer. And then breast cancer. I'm surprised at the number you stated. So just three drinks a week yes. elevates the increase so much for breast cancer. So going alcohol free really helps with that as well. It absolutely does. And, you know, I agree with you. I mean, I think, you know, one of my goals in a more perfect world, <laughs> no, just in a better world would be you know, that we really recognize our own personal responsibility. And I'm, I'm not going to get into choice, not choice. I mean, it, this is a disease and a chronic disease, but mm -hmm. it makes, you know, there's all the reason in the world to be 
proud and smart and self-responsible and be really, really good with yourself for making such a wonderful, personally responsible decision, even if it's reduction, even if it's less, it's okay. It's just a really good trend. And I feel like, you know, the more we can get that message out, the, the less people have peer pressure to drink because mm-hmm. it's, it's not that cool. And mm-hmm. I really hope that we can heighten that awareness as we would the other lifestyle choices you just talked about. Mm-hmm. As a proactive life choice. Mm-hmm. And I certainly agree with the impact on menopause as well. I'm in my early 50s as well. And uh, I was in my early 40s when I quit and I was experiencing really really uncomfortable and crazy early menopause symptoms, you know, at the height of my drinking in my late 30s and early 40s. And uh, boy, that was just such a wonderful, happy side effect to be alcohol free as I went through my 40s and into my 50s and just give my body a chance to do what it's meant to do and quit mucking with with the estrogen uh, levels as a result of drinking. I mean, there's just to me, it's just such a wonderful gift to give ourselves as we age and to help us age as, you know, the best we can be looking so good, feeling so good, and then having better sleep or just better hydration. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, There's so many great things about it. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about being a doctor and um, do you feel that the medical community is generally well-informed about alcohol use disorder? Do you feel there's room for improvement there? How can we advocate for that? <laughs> um, excellent question. And it really depends. You know, I was blessed. I got to train in a progressive city, Portland, Oregon, Oregon Health Sciences University. And it was a big part of our curriculum. Years one through three, we had a three-hour weekly afternoon session that brought in panels from the community, from all sectors of, you know, social, mental health, addiction issues. Um, We had representatives from AA come, OA. um, We had LGBTQ folks come and talk with us, homeless camps, and the folks that live there come and talk with us. Other, you know, more marginalized religion and cultural issues in that area we were exposed to, which was so important. And we not only had those panels, but we also had opportunities before our clinicals to have real volunteer patients and mock patients to learn how to appropriately communicate and help and just go through that process um, with patients. And then later, after our clinicals, we could volunteer down at the old town clinic in downtown Portland, which is on second and Cooch. And I'm not actually sure if it's still there, but 20 years ago, this was a great experience. And that population has so many struggles. I mean, addiction and mental health were number one and number two. And so we could go down there and volunteer and practice our skills and try to help, but more importantly, learn of the hardships and difficulties for access for these folks and not just access to come in, but access to medications, to compliance to the medications, to follow up, to social work referral, to finding a home for them. I mean, it just a coat for them. Um, It just went on and on. And so I feel like, you know, that was kind of a really exceptional experience. But not all medical school curriculums have it. And I don't can't really speak to how emphasized it is. I mean, we get some core education. But I remember 
other peers saying that really all they learned about it was an acronym called CAGE, C-A-G-E, which is an intake prompt for people when you're worried about them having an alcohol issue. And that is something like, have you ever thought you need to cut back on your drinking? Are you angry when you aren't able to have a drink? Do you feel guilty about how much you drink? And do you need an eye opener? So almost everybody in medicine can universally say what the cage is. That might be somewhat helpful. I guess if you have a very ill person who needs an an eye opener, you're going to catch those folks if they're honest. But I mean, this is such a broad spectrum problem. Ideally, we'd like to have, you know, that statistic of 85% of adults drink become the minority, right? And so we really need to be more comprehensive. There's so many nuances in discussing this with people, their trends. You know, some people may only drink two and a half glasses of wine, but it steals the next day from them. They don't feel good while they're doing it, you know, and that, of course, could eventually progress. So I, I, I think it needs to be part of the core curriculum because we just ran through the body systems, right? And how profoundly this can affect us, which, you know, has social impacts, economic impacts, it just everything, right? Criminal, personal, it's so comprehensive in its breadth of potential harm that we, we really need to have it part of our core curriculum and, you know, move it up in our purview so that when we're intaking patients, you know, I would rather have somebody ask me about this and get my eyes checked or get on a scale, you know, <laughs> so I don't know how to, <laughs> how to help, help that. I also think we could improve our education by having more connection with our referring mental health specialists, our behavioral health specialists, who are really much better at this period than we are. I think we need to do a little more bridging there. So we really understand the tools and resources that are available to us. So if we find ourselves ill-equipped, we still know what to do. And that's great. You know, that's great. So I think those are some of the ways that we could improve it. But I think it really, it really depends. The the CAGE acronym that you mentioned, that's really interesting. I hadn't heard that before. And I feel that those are great conversation starters. The problem is that usually when you are at the doctor for a, a typical appointment, they don't have time to talk a whole lot. I mean, those are good conversation starters. After that, you could have a two-hour conversation that might help someone get to some insight, but there aren't two hours to be had. <laughs> Nobody has that amount of time. Oh, so Yeah. Oh, Jean, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I mean, that's, from a physician's standpoint, that's one of the biggest restrictions. It's If you're seeing, you know, if you're a nurse practitioner, PA, generalist, family doc, um, OB-GYN, and you have, you know, I don't know, patients every 15 to 30 minutes, you are always going to fall short because you are just trying to knock out that chief complaint, that biggest problem. And, you know, so part of it is the recognition of the sensitivity and time it takes to have a a proper talk about this, you know, and one of the ways, well, we can talk in a minute about what, what patients can do to advocate for themselves. But I think, um, you know, yeah, that's a true constraint. And I'd like to see our system, our, our healthcare system change to allow a much longer time or designated behavioral health appointments that would have a full hour, maybe more, to talk about um, this and uh, 
I, I completely agree. I agree. Wouldn't that be amazing? You know, I'm in I'm in Canada, so our healthcare system is quite different. And I'm in Alberta. Our our healthcare here is managed provincially, so it looks different in each province. And um, mm-hmm. in Alberta, the government we have here now has uh, tried to curtail some of the costs of um, healthcare by imposing a new rule of one issue per appointment, and each appointment is 10 or 15 minutes. So if you go in because you have a broken toe, that's all you're there for. Now, if you have a broken toe because you you know, walked into the wall because you drink four bottles of wine a night, there's your second issue. (laughs) That's right. And that doctor has to decide, A, how can they squeeze that in? And B, they can't bill for it, even though they're now opening up a whole new can of worms. Can they get you to come back and talk? You know, there's just, it's really tricky. And I feel for, for caregivers that are put into that position of where they're trying to weigh the business of healthcare delivery at the same and the practicality of it along with their hearts calling to help people it's got to be really really tricky but how can we advocate for ourselves when we do go in if we're at say an annual physical and that question gets asked of uh, you know, how much are you drinking? I When I was drinking and I didn't want anyone to tell me not to drink, even though I was worried about it, I didn't want alcohol to be the problem. I definitely, definitely downplayed how much I drank to my doctor. So that's one side of it. I was scared, you know, I was scared of what would happen if I told him the truth. Mm-hmm. And now as a person in recovery, I sometimes feel that when I mention my recovery, I it's sort of like, oh, well, you self-diagnosed that and I don't really know if you really needed to quit drinking. or So on both sides of it, it can be difficult mm. to be the patient. So can you talk a little bit about that, how those conversations yeah. uh, can come about more easily and what we can do to advocate for ourselves? One of our limitations as providers, besides the time constraint you were talking about, which is so real and, and definitely needs attention, But it's also in our nature to try to be fixers, right? We really like the things that are an easy fix. Like, here, let's do this. Let's cast the arm. Six weeks later, let's do this. And alcohol and mental health issues and addiction issues and process addictions and behavior are tough. And I think part of our own sometimes internal resistance is that this isn't an easy fix. It's not an easy nut to crack, but it's not an excuse. I'm just offering it as an observation. It's not, it's not an easy gratification, I guess is what I would say. But, but, but back to how um, we can act um, from a patient standpoint, and you helped me with this, but I really feel like we have to start with putting our shame and fear down as best we can. We have to try to be honest. We have to trust that we're safe. I would certainly want my patients to feel that. I would like us to move to the point where talking about alcohol consumption is as matter of fact as talking about our high blood pressure or our broken toe, because it's that common. If 85% of people do this, this should be part of our normal conversation. So let's put that goal, you know, in the queue. But, you know, the obstacles that we face are the the stigma, the shame, the fear, and kind of like you alluded to, you know, we want to hold our cards close to ourselves because if we shine light on this, we might have to be accountable and we might have to look at monitoring and we're going to be asked again how that's going and that keeps a lot of people oh 
just wanting to kind of keep their their secrets close. And I think we can disarm that. I mean, we're in a really unique position to offer, hey, you know, 85% of people have a drink. How's that going for you? How are you feeling about it? Are you interested in trying to cut back? You know, just tell me, you know, and it doesn't just have to be about alcohol. It can be about any lifestyle choice that we're, we're wanting help on. So um, I think the other obstacles can be things like our medical record. And, um, you know, as a professional who works in medicine, there are a lot of barriers to that. And the system doesn't really support us being, you know, really frank and out there with any of our deficiencies. So I think, you know, if it's, if you're in a professional situation where you're worried about that, you can, you know, most little offices have a scribe or a transcriptionist that kind of sits in the corner and takes the notes um, as the doctor examines you now. And if there's a scribe in there, you can say, I need to ask you something privately. Can we ask the scribe to set, you know, step out? If that kind of decreases how much pressure you feel, actually just that action should really cue it up in your provider's you know, awareness that this is important to you. So I think, you know, we have to be brave and we have to just start the discussion. These aren't quick fixes. And if we can just get to contemplative and plant that seed, you know, over time um, and support and no judgment, we can open it up so that someone may actually be able to tell you more, tell you it's running their life a little bit, you know, things like that. So can we ask for those sort of off-the-record conversations? Are we able to ask questions and ask that it not be recorded in our file? Is there some obligation that a doctor has to take notes of those things? I don't want to speak to everybody. <laughs> I don't, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. but I, I understand. <laughs> in a while, we'll talk about, you know, how it affects me and my job with what I do every day. But, I, you know, that's a personal discussion I'm having with someone and I... I don't have a need to to put it in there if it, their wishes are are not to. I mean, we're talking. Of, I, I want to be clear that I'm talking about people who want to change a habit that hasn't kind of hit a critical medical point. That would be completely different. If you are physiologically dependent on alcohol, you need help, and you especially don't want to go home and detox without medical supervision. So that's kind of a complete different basket. I mean, a lot of my patients are kind of at that spot where they're drinking more than moderately, but they're not drinking excessively. And, and I'm not trying to say everybody, no matter how little or much you drink, if you want to change, it needs to be discussed. But I just want to clarify that <laughs> I think I think sometimes you're safe to just take that conversation privately, get them a referral to a mental health specialist, and let that course take itself where it needs to go to help them get linked in, looped in, and start working on it. But if it's a critical medical issue, that's going to be different. But you know what I would say is once we had the scribe step out, I'd try to figure out where we were at with that. I'd try to observe their blood pressure, whether they're having withdrawal, sweats, all the things that you kind of try to look at, shakes, you know, yada, yada, um, when you're looking at someone to, and I'd tell them, you need to get really real and honest with me. Are we in trouble here? And you know, how much are we drinking? And I'll help you. I'm with you. But, you know, so I just, I think with that question, I just have to be careful. It depends on where you're at on the spectrum of, you know, 
alcohol use disorder from. Right, right. So if someone comes in and they're having liver failure and right, <laughs> and right. drinking is, is part of the diagnosis and part of the problem. Right. I mean, obviously that has to be recorded. But right. It sounds like there is space yeah. for that sort of gentle approach that is when it is more about our mental health. And because if we are talking to our doctors about it and being proactive and self-advocating, you know, that just self-selects, I think, uh, an earlier stage of trajectory Mm -hmm. um, because um, it it is, um, it lends itself to being at different stages along the spectrum. I mean, if we're able to self-advocate, clearly um, we're at an earlier stage on the trajectory. I guess I'm making an assumption there based on my own experience. I, I kind of, I would have the same. I think, you know, a couple other things we should realize is, you know, sometimes this is our first intake. Sometimes we don't know that provider. Sometimes I would say in medicine, like all professions, there are people who are naturally very intuitive and empathic that are very easy to talk to. Some physicians are amazing physicians who are exceptionally algorithmic. They run off a list, they're very process-oriented, and they may not come off as being the best person to connect with. And I'm not saying you shouldn't try because you'd be surprised at what beauty can come forth when you do, but it also may just be that you're not feeling it and you're not going to connect well with them. That's your right, and you can make a change. And a couple ways you can do that is to ask for a referral. Say I'm having some habit issues that I'd like to talk to a mental health specialist about, ask for a referral without getting into the deets with them. Or, you know, if it's really one of those things where you just want out of there, you can go home and call the clinic manager or clinic director and say, you know, I'm having some other, some behavioral issues that I'd like to see someone about. I need a, you know, I need to see who else you have in clinic that might be able to help me with that. You know, I want people to be able to do that without fear of medical retribution, you know, we, we all can change our mind. We don't all click well with people. This happens to me both on both ends of it. And I think it's a normal thing that we don't always connect. And so I want to say it's okay to make a change as well. And then the other thing I think is really important is, you know, something we call confirmation bias. And that is, okay, if 85% of adults drink, most of your physicians are drinkers. Okay. And so if a if a person comes in and they talk to their doctor about, hey, I'm having three glasses of wine a night and I, I think it's habit forming and I seem to be thinking about this at five o'clock every day, uh, you know, and their doctor's like, don't worry about it. You know, if they're a drinker, they're going to tell their patient not to worry about it because that confirms their own behavior. And then likewise, if you're the patient and you go in and you're having a little niggle about how much you're drinking, but you really don't want to let go of that wine. It seems to help you through some rough nights, but you better tell your doctor. And you go and you tell your doctor, and your doctor says, oh, you know, so do I. Don't worry about it. You know, that confirms your own behavior. So we just have to kind of be aware of that and call out our own BS, if you will, on <laughs> on looking for those affirmatives in our behavior when we kind of know we're in trouble. Does that make sense? Well, it does. But how, we can't argue with our doctor. <laughs> oh, you know what? <laughs> or you can't ask them, well, why? How much do you drink? Um, um, so oh, that's, can, yeah, it's true. It can get kind of tricky. 
<laughs> How do we navigate that? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I think if I went to someone and I was drinking three glasses of wine and I was hung over till one o'clock every day, and this was a habit, and I every day I told myself I wasn't going to, and every day I did, and I went and told my doctor, and they were like, don't worry about it. I would say, well, you know, I can tell you're okay with it, but I brought it up because I'm not okay with it. So I kind of need to talk to someone. Can, can we get me a referral today? And I know that that sounds confrontational, but I think we do kind of have to say, well, I'm still worried about it. Because the truth right. is, you know this better than me. It can be one glass of wine a week if you don't want to be drinking it. You know what I'm saying? It there's no, sure. there's no amount that qualifies for I'd like a change here. And so I think we need to push back against that. And I think that's okay. You mm -hmm. know, I would say, do mm -hmm. it, have the conversation, say, I'm not okay with this. You know, I, right. I want to talk to somebody. I feel like, you know, you have the right to make those changes in your life. I feel like we're still kind of locked into the old thinking of that being alcohol free is the antidote for a diagnosis of alcoholism. And I think we need to think about it in terms of being alcohol free Yes, it is. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, it is the solution mm -hmm. for addiction, but it is also a lifestyle choice with health benefits. And if you went to your doctor and said, I wanted to get off sugar and the doctor said, you don't need to, don't worry about it. You still have the right to advocate for that choice. So it's kind of a mindset thing too, I guess. I think that's an excellent point. And that's exactly right. You know, it really is you're trying to take personal responsibility. You're trying, you're trying to make a smart and better and more healthy decision that really doesn't need explanation. So let's spend our last few minutes talking about your experience and how how your life experience has lent itself to the way that you care for your patients and particularly when it comes to issues around alcohol use disorder. Right. So I've already mentioned my own history with it, you know, behaviors <laughs> and compulsions. Um, so I'm sensitized to it just from personal experience, but it has a nice juxtaposition with what I do every day. And for the most part, at least in Oregon, my practice is primarily women's imaging. So I'm seeing women who have breast lumps, um, screeners too, but people who come in with a diagnostic breast issue. And every person who comes in with a focal breast issue, I end up talking to. So I can talk to them about their breast health. And it kind of naturally flows into uh, things that affect their breast health, like their diet, like their caffeine intake. Are they on hormone replacement? Are they on birth control? How much do they drink? Are they smoking? Do they smoke marijuana as well? lifestyle choices, exercise, sleep. And it just kind of organically, you can run through this list of things that can affect our breast health. Very matter-of-factly with the judgment and shame shroud gone and just chat with women. And often it kind of opens them up because you're talking about all their health things. And then you can talk about, you know, more specifically if they're having issues with alcohol, how you might be able to help them. You know, is it tricky? Do you need help? Are you looking for a change? You know, maybe that doesn't happen all the first, very first appointment, but over time we can chat a lot about it. And I've seen a lot of women go from, you know, not worrying about it to getting a little contemplative, not just about that, but many of their lifestyle choices. So I think that's a really natural in. I've also had, you know, several really young women 
who have entered with breast cancer diagnoses in a delayed fashion because of their drinking, because they weren't able to take care of themselves and show show up for themselves for their regular screening. So they've had like a delayed diagnosis or they were very heavy drinkers and, you know, have a late stage aggressive tumor. And I'm definitely not saying that everyone who drinks gets breast cancer. I'm not saying that, but there is correlation and alcohol can really set fire there. And so I've seen these women go on to have, you know, really sad and and hard courses and go on to die sometimes. And that just really compels me to be brave enough to talk to women about this when I have the chance. So I think that's why my, you know, profession really lends itself to the conversation. Is it a surprise to women to hear the connection between alcohol and breast cancer? Almost 100% of the time. I feel like we're just not getting the message. And in fact, you know, I saw on Instagram today um, a previous guest, Emily Lynn Paulson, called out some alcohol companies that are promoting wine as being like a pink ribbon purchase. You know, so much from every bottle of wine is going to the Pink Ribbon Foundation. So here is the thing that is contributing (laughs) to breast cancer, uh, donating back to it so, you know, you can somehow feel good about it. And that is not the message. I mean, we're not getting the message. I know. Well, it's, it's, there's, it's all of our advertising and marketing and big money, you know, I think. Um, mm-hmm. and Dowsett's done a beautiful job examining that. And I feel like it's, it's really a disservice to women and, and men. It's just a disservice because breast is one area that's greatly affected, but you heard the laundry list. We don't talk right. about it nearly enough. And a lot of it is reversible. If we can find the power to change that habit through all the tools you talk about with all your guests, you know, and, and really get to work on that. Even if it's harm reduction, even if it's half of the time, you know, whatever it is to work um, on that trend of being healthier by reducing this, it's, it's really a huge health benefit. And I really look forward to the time where it's the norm, where it's recognized as a smart and moxie and personally responsible decision to not drink poison. So, you know, I really, I I don't feel like that message gets out. Society has that very backwards. I think your work is helping that. And I think a lot of other, you know, people's work out there is really helping change that. But it's slow. It's slow that we've got a lot of change ahead of us. We, yeah, I think we just have to get more comfortable having these awkward conversations. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually really applaud, you know, our younger generations are much more open and just proactive about things. So uh, I really have a lot of hope mm-hmm. for future generations being a little bit less inhibited and just refusing to be patted on the head and said, oh, no, no, honey, you know. Yeah. <laughs> For three or four glasses of wine a night is okay. No, like I really, I really admire uh, anyone sort of tenacious enough to, to stand up and advocate for themselves and say, you know, I'm not okay with that answer. For sure. Mm-hmm. My, my final question to you is if you could wave a magic wand and, and improve the way that we approach health and, and alcohol use, what would you change? And is that the thing you'd change or is there something else you have in mind? Well, um, I mean, I think we need to take the morality out of drinking. 
I just do. I, I think this needs to be an inclusive thing. If 86 or 87% of adults drink, this isn't you and me. This is us. And I think that that inclusive voice is what can really help dissipate the shame and stigma. It, you know, I think if 86% of people drink, maybe only 30% drink problematically, but it still needs, I mean, I'm making that up, but, you know, not everyone who drinks has a problem, but they all have the potential to have a problem. So it really needs um, to be reframed. And I think that's kind of what we've said the whole time. So I'd like to, you know, get it on the table with the other chronic health issues as far as, you know, an economic emphasis, a curriculum emphasis, uh, you know, it needs to be higher on the medical purview right up there with diabetes and hypertension and cancer and COPD who actually, you know, those chronic diseases also affect a lot of people, but alcohol really affects the vast majority of adults in some way. And so I, I just think we have a lot of work to do on getting it better attention as, you know, a way to work on it and promote reduction of use or cessation of use and why. And, you know, I think we just need to recognize that it's a very smart and healthy choice. We need to really change the language on it. You know, you go to a party now and people will say it's socially awkward to not drink, and I'd like to have that change. I don't think the question is, why don't you drink? I think the question should be, why do you drink? Aha. Uh-huh. I love it. I love it. Flip that right on its ear. Mm-hmm. It happened with cigarettes and it has mm-hmm. happened in other aspects of life. So hopefully we can get there. And the way we get there is by talking and being honest and, and having these conversations. So I'm so grateful that you are here today. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Jean. And thank you so much for the work you continue to do. I know it probably takes a tremendous amount of time and I just, I love what you do and I'm really grateful for it as well. Oh, thank you. And listeners, if you would like to be in touch with Dr. Maureen, you can send an email to me and I will make sure she gets it. TheBubbleHour at gmail.com. Send your message there and I will forward it on to Maureen so that she can answer your questions or receive your feedback. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. I hope that you picked up some good tidbits and I hope that you are feeling confident and empowered to speak honestly with your doctor and caregivers about your recovery or your concerns. Your health is the most important thing. It truly is. And so I'm really glad that we were able to have this chat today. So that's all for this week, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on. Take back a little dig.
Just want to be free from power. Oh, you said I'm. 